0: This conversation on COVID 19 is made possible by discovery.
1: Welcome to Inside COVID 19. I'm Jackie Cameron for Biz News. In this episode of Inside COVID-19, we look at whether pharmaceutical companies can make enough COVID vaccines. We also pick up with actuary Nick Hudson, who shares how South African-grown Panda has transformed into a global organisation, with the experts behind the Great Barrington Declaration on their advisory board. Panda is fiercely opposed to strict lockdowns. Also signalling the alarm about lockdowns is psychology professor Leonard Jason, who has co-authored a paper on long COVID. First, the COVID 19 news making world headlines.
0: Inside COVID 19, from Biz News.
1: More than 56.5 million people have tested positive for COVID 19 around the world. That's according to the Johns Hopkins Coronavirus Resource Center. The US has the highest number, with more than 11.5 million people testing positive and a quarter of a million deaths. South Africa is number 16 on the list of countries with the highest number of cases, with the government reporting just under 756,000 positive tests and about 20,600 deaths. Dr. Henry Walk, COVID-19 incident manager at the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, says his center is alarmed about the number of Americans wanting to travel for Thanksgiving. The CDC has urged Americans to cancel their plans. After shutting their borders and introducing strict lockdowns during the first wave of coronavirus, many European countries are doing it all over again as a second wave of infections sweeps across the continent. But while the UK has gone headfirst into a second nationwide lockdown, some other governments are trying more targeted measures as cases creep up. This is according to The Week magazine. The number of confirmed cases in France has passed the 2 million mark this week, despite a second national lockdown that began at the end of October and is expected to last until at least the beginning of next month. Under the restrictions, people are only allowed to leave home for essential work or medical reasons. Non-essential businesses, such as restaurants and bars, have closed, but schools and factories remain open. Despite the continuing rise in cases in Germany, Chancellor Angela Merkel has said that she does not have the backing of German state leaders for new restrictions to give the soft lockdown a harder bite. That's according to the Guardian newspaper. The British Medical Journal reported last week that the region of Lombardy alone was registering close to 7,600 new COVID-19 infections every day, breaking records in Italy during the peak of the first wave. Since Monday, three quarters of Portugal, which include Porto and Lisbon, have been under the government's toughest curfew restrictions. The curfew is enforced from 11 pm to 5 am on weekdays and from 1 pm to 5 am on weekends. The BBC reports that in Britain, more than a third of hospitality firms say they have little or no confidence of surviving the next three months. This is according to Office for National Statistics data. The sector, which includes hotels, bars, and restaurants, is the most downbeat about its prospects. The lockdowns and restrictions caused by COVID-19 have hit the industry hard. Earlier this week, Trade Body UK Hospitality said the sector had lost 660,000 jobs so far this year. Across the economy as a whole, the statistics office has found that 14% of businesses felt they had low or no confidence of survival. Stéphane Bansell, the chief executive officer of Moderna, whose vaccine was found to be 94.5% effective in a preliminary analysis of a trial, said that more investment in early testing is needed. If so, vaccines could be created even faster. Bloomberg reports that Bill Gates, co-chair of the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, has highlighted progress being made on coronavirus vaccines, but is critical of other aspects of the US COVID-19 response. The International Monetary Fund's managing director, Kristalina Georgieva, has said she would urge the world's richest nations to continue their support for economies wrecked by the pandemic, despite the promising vaccine news. She is quoted as saying that a second wave of infections is slowing down the recovery. It is losing momentum. It is so important that we don't pull back until we see the health crisis in the rearview mirror. Britain's NHS is bringing together an army of retired doctors, health visitors and physiotherapists to embark on the country's biggest ever mass vaccination programme. The extraordinary effort in England will also include district nurses and high street chemists alongside GPs in the drive to immunise 22 million vulnerable adults, followed by the rest of the population. The Guardian newspaper says that its sources indicate code names for two of the most promising vaccines in development. The Pfizer-BioNTech version is called Courageous, and the Oxford-AstraZeneca vaccine is known as Talent. Estimates about the percentage of COVID-19 patients who experience long-haul symptoms range widely, says the Wall Street Journal. A recent survey of more than 4,000 COVID-19 patients found that about 10% of those aged 18 to 49 still struggle with symptoms four weeks after becoming sick. More on long COVID-19 later in the programme when we speak to a professor of psychology Next, our partners at Bloomberg speak to Eli Lilly CEO David Ricks about the challenges facing the company and its new treatment amid the worsening
2: pandemic. In a mere nine months, Eli Lilly accomplished an unprecedented feat. The drug giant took a blood sample from one of the first US patients to recover from COVID-19 identified an antibody that could fight the virus, and created a version of that antibody to treat people with the disease. Reporter Riley Griffin spoke to Lilly's chief executive officer, David Ricks, about the challenges facing the company and its new treatment among the worsening pandemic. So, Riley, you spoke to Lilly's chief executive officer, David Ricks, just after they were given the green light from regulators about their new antibody treatment. I was wondering if you might give us a brief introduction to exactly how Lilly's treatment works.
3: Absolutely, so what this class of treatments known as monoclonal antibodies is, is they're man-made versions of antibodies that the body produces in response to the infection of the novel coronavirus. So Lilly and its partner, Abcellera actually identified one of the earliest patients in the U.S. to have recovered from the coronavirus. And back in the, the early months of the pandemic, um, they used that information, that sample, to create their own product. And it's an intravenous injection that you receive in a hospital setting, in an outpatient setting. And it ultimately, its best use, as we know right now, is to treat those with COVID-19 that are at early stages of symptoms. So not those who have progressed to the hospitalized setting. Obviously, this
2: is great news. And what was David Ricks' reaction to news of the approval
3: when you spoke to him? David Ricks was incredibly excited.
4: Yeah, well, obviously, we're excited. I'm most excited for the scientists who I know who work at our company and We're not done, of course, we can, as you know, we're working on improved versions and getting a full license for this. Uh, We'd like to get it approved in Europe and other countries, but uh, perhaps it's the end of the beginning for very effective treatments for newly diagnosed patients with um, SARS-CoV-2.
3: This is a, a scientific feat that those at Lilly, those at Abcelera, those at the NIH are so excited about. It is a a tool seen as a bridge to a vaccine to treat those at the early stages of their disease and prevent them from progressing to the hospitalized setting. So it's another thing to add to the toolkit of doctors um, who are looking to treat those with COVID-19, particularly in a moment where we are seeing global surges in cases.
2: This green light is certainly good news. Challenges are not over yet. I mean, what would you say is the biggest hurdle that Lily is anticipating in, say, the weeks or months to come?
3: Lily is quite concerned about supply. I think the most notable thing out of this conversation with David Ricks was really that capacity, no matter how much manufacturing capacity they have, no matter how many deals they reach for additional firepower to boost supply, there simply is not going to be enough.
4: The real challenge is about scale. I don't think we would have predicted back in April when we triggered the decision to start manufacturing at pretty big scale, million doses this fall, that we may need all of those and then some. It occurred to us you know, a few months later that might be true and now we're in the middle of this surge and uh, I think we did everything we could, but still it may not be enough. So we have to continue to try to squeeze out as much supply as we can. And unfortunately that's not a quick turnaround time, but
3: clearly will be needed. Um, It's really quite concerning to David Ricks. I'll have you know that within the first week, they've shipped out 88,000 doses of this antibody. But just consider the sheer number of cases on a daily basis.
2: So with any new treatment for COVID-19, concerns are tied up with distribution. Who will be able or eligible to receive the new antibody therapy from Lilly?
3: The Food and Drug Administration has authorized the experimental treatment for use against mild to moderate COVID-19 in adults, including those who are 65 and older, as well as pediatric patients. Lilly will supply the product, but the U.S. and a distributing partner will determine how to allocate this product based on need. So where there are cases, it will proportionately be distributed to states, territories, municipalities, cities, and so forth.
4: It will take a little bit of time for doctors to learn about this and start getting, you know, getting their own experience. But that's against the background of probably something like a million patients diagnosed with COVID-19 this week in the United States. Amongst those million, we would estimate something like 30 percent are high risk, so you know, there's not enough supply to go around.
3: The U.S. is going to have a challenging time at that sub-level, at the local level, determining who is high risk within this camp, because the number of mild to moderate COVID-19 patients in this country is massive at this point in time as we see a, a U.S. surge unfold. So, Riley, you've already
2: identified some serious challenges just on the U.S. level And Lilly has agreed to supply the U.S. with the initial 300,000 vials of the therapy, but there will be obvious global demand for this
3: therapy. How is Lilly going to meet that demand? This is a fascinating question because Lilly is approaching the question of supply and demand very differently than we're seeing others who are developing both treatments and vaccines Um, Lilly did clinch this deal for 300,000 vials of the antibody treatment, but the U.S. has this option to purchase an additional 650,000 vials. Now, you got to read the fine print in that, because those 650,000 vials will only go to the U.S. if Lilly and the federal government determine that the need is high here and higher than elsewhere.
4: We know we have more capacity at the time we signed that deal. Interested in making sure that there was access to this medicine no matter where the disease was. You know, it's raging in Europe as well. Of course, Europe hasn't approved the drug and they haven't contracted with us yet. So while that's the case, I think our ability to get more drug to the U.S. will go up because they've got this option. But the option is a two-way option so that both parties need to agree. So it's an agreement to agree later. And it is currently designed to kick in a, Two months after the initial emergency use authorization. I'll tell you, if, if no other country approves this or contracts, then we'll be at liberty to uh, just get more products to uh, U.S. patients who need it. Uh, if Europe approves this quickly and wants to contract, again, at the same rates as the U.S., we'll, we'll ship product to them as well. There's a epidemic in, particularly in France right now, that's very concerning. So um, you know, we want to get the product to where it's needed most.
3: Many of the companies that have agreed to deals with Operation Warp Speed have agreed flat out. Here is a, a price that they receive for a dose, right? But Lilly with these 650,000 vials is saying you can have these vials if and only if there is significant need. Now, what Ricks did say is it's looking like there is going to be significant need here in the U.S. as the pandemic surges on. But we'll we'll wait to see in the months to come whether it taps into that supply.
2: So, Riley, finally, how does Lily anticipate working with the Biden administration? Have the results of the election changed any of their plans?
3: Ricks made a, a fascinating point here, which is, Operation Warp Speed is working. Eli Lilly and company and the broader drug industry is incredibly supportive and in fact applauds the work of the White House led Operation Warp Speed effort. An important thing to note, however, is that Lilly has not taken capital from Operation Warp Speed for its R&D or its manufacturing. The deal it's clinched is for supply and supply alone. You might know the name Pfizer at this point and its partner, BioNTech, they're in a similar camp. Those two companies did not take money for research and development or manufacturing capacity, but really just those doses. And that's quite novel again. It's different from those like Johnson & Johnson or Moderna or even Regeneron here in the antibody space that have taken money for initial research. It was very important for Lilly to have put down that risky investment from the get-go. And we will see what liberties that will allow them moving forward, both amid the pandemic and in a post-pandemic world.
1: Coming up, Biznews News webinar attendees grilled anti-lockdown activist Nick Hudson about whether his predictions for a low death rate for South Africa were accurate and other developments. In a webinar hosted by BizNews founder Alec Hogg this week
0: we've got Nick Hudson, who is with us now. Nick, good to see you uh, again. We've we've seen the Great Barrington Declaration. Uh, not everybody has actually read it or understands it properly. And we also, of course, know that Panda uh, is uh, an organisation that you co-founded. Perhaps we can start with that. You're an actuary. You're in private equity.
5: What is going on at PANDA and, and what is PANDA? So, PANDA is a, a, now an international organization, multidisciplinary think tank focusing on coronavirus policy in general. And we're actually quite closely linked with the Great Barrington Declaration because the three original signatories of that document are all members of our advisory board, scientific advisory board. Um, The organization now has approximately 100 members, the majority scientists, quite an international uh, slant to it, crossing all disciplines, immunology, vaccinology, epidemiology, and then more broadly, bacterial science economists, lawyers, public health specialists, communications experts, statisticians. It's really a very diverse group and some top, top minds in the field. Geneticists and so on, who would be recognisable to anybody in the field as preeminent people in their fields. But that's quite a coup to
0: get the guys who put together the Great Barrington Declaration on your advisory board. Were they were they just impressed by the work that Panda had done,
5: or do you know them personally? We got to know them prior to the signing of the Great Barrington Declaration online. So we had connected with the three of them. That's uh, Professors Gupta, Batacharya and Kuldorf, as well as the other two members, uh, Professor Michael Levitt and uh, Professor Sucharit Bhakti from the University of Mainz. Prior to the, the signature, we were already in contact and uh, we, we identified immediately that they were seeing the world the same way we were. And what was very interesting about this cast of characters is they pretty much independently came to their viewpoints and then found each other in a, in a similar fashion after listening to one another's YouTube videos and so on. All saying the same thing, all saying that this general lockdown approach has been a disaster, was predictably a disaster, that the right and obviously correct thing to do in the face of a a virus that has massively graduated age-based mortality was to focus on protecting the vulnerable and allowing the non-vulnerable to get on with their daily lives under conditions of more or less complete normality. And that was a conclusion we had arrived to uh, at at Panda in May in our first paper. It was the concluding paragraph. But as it turns out, you know, these scientists came to exactly the same conclusion quite independently. And in, in I, I would say because they're experts in the field, they they got to it faster than we did. They were there very quickly um, because it is really conventional uh, response to ep- an epidemic. This general lockdown story is completely unconventional. And at odds with the science. It's a, it's, a, it's a messy, messy affair that should never have been attempted. Uh, those are big names globally,
0: including Professor yeah. Michael Levitt, who is a South African. But the other guys who are, on the, uh, are now on the Panda Advisory Board, these are not people who necessarily would have a, a warm spot or feeling towards South Africa. Why is it
5: that they are taking such an interest in your organization? When we realized that the South African policy response had stopped being about the science and that we were getting no traction and the same errors were just being repeated time and time again, we realized it was just political and that it was being done with the air cover of the World Health Organization. And we realized that if we were going to have an impact and do the things that we thought were right to do, we would need to take our efforts international. And so we started looking around for similar organizations to Panda. And whilst we came across many groupings of, say, doctors or economists or, or whatever, there really wasn't anybody with the same diverse skill set, the, the ability to marshal all of the international data and to do the kind of studies that we were doing. So we abandoned the approach of trying to join somebody else and just decided to expand our story internationally. And I think they saw the same thing. They saw in, in our uh, organization the ability to marshal skills from multiple disciplines to cover all the international data and to be a home for all these scientists to have from the word go rejected the policies that have been undertaken but found no home even in their own institutions and so it's been it's been a great experience for us they're they're wonderful people i, I would encourage your uh, your listeners to have a listen to the interviews that we're rolling out of each of them. I had the, the rare privilege of spending nearly an hour interviewing uh, Professor Suneetra Gupta. And I've got to tell you, it was one of the best hours of my life. I absolutely loved every minute of it. She's wonderful. And uh, yeah, there will be more of those because it's important, I think, for people to understand the human dimension with all the names being thrown around, you know, granny killers, et cetera, et cetera. It's really important to, to meet people and to see that that's not what they're about. It's an it's an awful slur to cast in the direction of a person who's in public health and who's making legitimate arguments that are consistent with all the prior science, to call them names like that, and actually quite disgraceful, if you ask me.
0: There are a few questions here. The first one is from Chaman, uh, who says, you predicted 10,000 deaths originally, but you were 100% wrong. Can you explain why?
5: Well, we predicted 10,000 deaths at the time at the South African Coronavirus Modeling Consortium and the NICD were predicting 351,000 deaths, and whether it's 10 or 20 does not matter. The point is that this response was completely overwrought. We've had our model, our model up on our website in public domain for many months now. I think our May uh, model was, which was the the first time we kind of departed from that initial rough estimate of 10,000 and started putting out an explicit curve in the public domain, is now tracking within half a percent. Error. you know, and what month are we in? Seven months later. So, no, I mean, I'm not going to take that kind of criticism lying down. The predictions we've made, the errors that we pointed out in the government's models and the actuarial society's models, um, have all been proven with the passing of time to have been spot on. They were overestimating the fatality rates. They were overestimating the susceptibility of the population to the disease. They were getting the timing of the peaks wrong. They were missing the seasonality story. We we were correct in all of those things. Just as time has gone by, the detail has been filled in. So we know now why people are not all susceptible to this disease. It's because there is both T cell and B cell cross-reactivity, prior immunity from prior coronavirus infections. The actual detailed mechanisms of the observations we were making are now being filled in. Um, And you can go and look at our website. That original forecast is up there. And you can tell me whether you think that that was a bad job. Cecil
0: says, you have not been in favour of lockdown in South Africa. However, what is your attitude
5: to lockdowns happening in Europe? It's an absolute mess there. (laughs) there, Alec. What's happening is that they've got, the disease has gone into its seasonal endemic phase, along with all the other respiratory viruses that we've lived with for the entire duration of human history and then some. We could probably say mammalian history. And what's happened is, you're getting the winter surge of respiratory viruses, but there are no excess deaths from coronavirus. In the UK, there are a few excess deaths, but there are deaths at home and they're caused by basically lockdown conditions by people being excluded from routine medical care and that kind of thing. So there's no, there's no second wave. It's just now an endemic seasonal virus. And that they're locking down in response to this is one of the most ridiculous public health policies that ever been seen in the world. Inside COVID-19, from Biz News.
1: Biz News is throwing open Monday's subscriber-only Rational Radio webinar to the whole community to celebrate the launch of our first great debate. We'll be looking at both sides of the COVID-19 story with Pandas Nick Hudson taking on South African academic Professor White's Whiteside. BizNews founder, Alec Hogg, will be moderating. You can find the link to register at biznews.com. Next, we speak to one of the co-authors of a new paper on long COVID. Jackie Cameron for BizNews. With me is Professor Leonard Jason, who is a professor of psychology at DePaul University in Chicago. Welcome, Professor. Thank you very much for joining us today.
6: Thank you. Happy to join you.
1: So, Professor, you've produced a very interesting journal article on long COVID, and this research uh, was reported on by the Wall Street Journal and various other media organizations. Could you perhaps start by telling us what made you decide to do this research, and how does it tie in with your speciality, which is psychology?
6: Yes. For about um, 30 years, I've been studying an illness called ME-CFS, which is something that some people refer to as myalgic encephalomyelitis, some people refer to it as chronic fatigue syndrome. And this ME-CFS illness often starts off with a person having a virus, usually Epstein-Barr virus, getting mono, and then not recovering. So that's a group that I've been studying for many years um, with basic epidemiology and prospective long-term studies. When COVID-19 emerged around the world, I was pretty certain that there would be a certain number of people who got exposed to this virus who did not recover. And that's why I thought that it might be a good idea to basically be able to see some of the characteristics of what these so-called long haulers are, people who've gotten the COVID-19, but then over several months um, or longer have not gotten over their symptoms.
1: How serious is the psychological aspect of long COVID? Does it cause depression? And if so, you know, are there different grades of depression?
6: So I would say that COVID-19 is a pandemic. Um, It affects everybody, those who basically have it and those who don't have it. So that the fact that you've got this lockdown occurring really makes more difficult to have social interactions, particularly with the holidays coming up with uh, um, December and November. So lots of people like to get together and they're being told that might be a risk factor for family celebrations and friends celebrations. So yes, there's a lot of isolation that's occurring throughout the world. Um, And certainly social isolation is a incredible risk factor for all types of negative outcomes. Um, I'm not sure if you know, but social isolation is really just about as damaging as tobacco, as a risk factor for later health problems. So it is serious. It is occurring with everyone. And then if you have on top of that, having an illness that knocks you out and makes you miss work and family opportunities and social activities, that becomes problematic. If you don't recover from that, the so-called long haulers, then that becomes even more serious. So, yes, any time you have a chronic illness, regardless of what it is, whether it's cancer or something else, you do have often um, individuals who have emotional reactions to that. Um, And sometimes it does occur, things like depression.
1: This type of depression, is this something that psychologists can help with or do we need different types of medicine? Is it something that we can work through by talking to other people? Or, you know, is there something chemical that changes forever or biological changes forever so
6: I think it's important to differentiate something called demoralization from depression you know a person might be demoralized they might basically feel that they're not getting support from family and friends they're not getting their business associates or workers to appreciate the fact that they have significant fatigue and different different issues you know in in the long haul so so to the extent that you don't get support that could be something very different than depression. And in those situations, hopefully, you know, we can do some education to the public to be more supportive of these individuals who have continuing persistent symptoms. However, if a person has what's called classic depression, they have something usually that's called self-reproach. Um, they have negative feelings about themselves and negative feelings about um, what they might want to accomplish. So if you have clinical depression, whether it's for COVID-19 or whether it's for um, the lockdown that's occurring, it's much better to get some help from either self-help groups or professionals to deal with that than it is to use not effective coping strategies, which involve things like um, substance use or um, eating or other types of activities like that that can get one in trouble. Not any eating, but basically if you do too much eating... Too much of a particular activity, that's the problem, of course. We don't want to see people become obese and then have a risk factor because of that.
1: It's quite a frightening concept that you'll never actually recover from this disease. Do you have any idea of how many people are not recovering or unlikely to recover based on your research of other viruses?
6: Well, yeah, I mean, think of it Think of it yourself. If, if you had the worst case of the flu, and you, you can sort of take it for a couple of days, but just imagine if you... And it continued to feel that way for weeks. You can imagine how um, upsetting that would be. Now, there's two types of cases. For some types of individuals, they have clear organ problems. Their their heart doesn't work as well. Their lungs don't work as well. So they have something they can attribute their their difficulties to. But for a lot of people, they come to their primary care physicians and they can't find anything. And that becomes very tough to. In a sense, tell your healthcare workers and your family and, and co workers that you don't know why you're sick, but you do feel sick. And in terms of, you know, what percentage, Tony Komaroff, you know, said it could be 40 to 80% of people seem to have some persisting symptoms. That's quite a lot. So there's a lot of people that have some residues of this illness. I would say that I would not be surprised. If over a period of time, the ones who are really significantly affected might be about maybe 10%. We certainly don't know that number now, but I would, looking at past epidemics, I would say that that's a very likely figure.
1: You mentioned that social isolation is as devastating as smoking tobacco for your health. Can you elaborate on that and also perhaps give some ideas on on how we can help? people we know who are living on their own but can't socialize because of the rules.
6: So yes, uh, meta-analyses, what these are is like large groups of studies and have looked at this, have found that social isolation is really an incredible risk factor. So what's going on in the world is really, in a sense, contributing to the fact that we are less connected with others because um, we're careful. So you walk down the street And someone that you might have known before, you know, walks on the other side of the street to sort of avoid you or, you know, just kind of says hello, doesn't really want to talk to you because they're afraid. You know that those types of experiences are being replicated throughout the world of, you know, people are just not connected as they once were. So, yes, we have to do more activities that could involve calling someone up on the phone that you haven't talked to for a while making a Zoom call, having maybe a support pod of people that you can count on and regularly contact. So I think we have to initiate activities. It could even be that you check in with people yourself by calling or, or Zooming um, or Skyping so that you, in a sense, become the ambassador to caring about others. If you care about others, you will then basically care about yourself.
1: Before we close off, what's next for your research? Where are you taking this paper? So right now we are um,
6: kind of looking at individuals who had COVID and now um, are are now struggling with it and looking at their symptomatology um, and comparing it with people with other fatiguing illnesses like ME-CFS, lupus, post-polio syndrome and MS, you know, we, so we're, we're trying to see how it ranks with some of these other disorders. Um, we're also doing prospective research where we have a large database of over 4,500 students who gave us blood samples and self report questionnaires. And we're now going back and contacting them, and that we'll be able to see those who develop COVID versus not, were there some predisposing factors that help us understand this illness?
1: Am I correct in understanding that a lot of diseases, there's a strong link, for example, between lupus and depression or MS and depression. Is, is that where your interest lies? So,
6: yes, um, it turns out that um, lots of these autoimmune diseases basically, or any chronic illness, is going to increase chances of us having um, some type of psychiatric um, problems. So, so I'm interested in psychology of the mind and the body um, because we can do things to enhance our immune system and fight our ability to get COVID by, you know, doing some really basic things with nutrition and sleep um, and exercise, um, you know, activity. So those are things that we want to do is we want to have the body as strong as possible to fight off this illness. And, and there's things we can do to protect our immunity. And psychology is a way of us knowing what those strategies are.
1: brings to close your Inside COVID-19 podcast. Until next time.
0: This conversation on COVID-19 is made possible by Discovery.